Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 21. We'll read through verse 43. Today we come to the fourth and final sermon in a series entitled Commitment. Throughout the month of September, we've been answering the question, what does it mean to belong to First Baptist Church Pelham? We've concluded that membership means commitment to Christ. He is the God-man. Commitment to God's Word. Not only do we learn it, but we live it. Commitment to church attendance. Because God gives us a breathing hole every seven days called corporate worship where we come in and are able to catch our breath. And today we will discover that membership implies a commitment to ministry. Because God has crafted good things for you to do for His glory. So with that in mind, I invite us to take a look at Mark chapter 5. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 5, let's begin at verse 21, I'll read through verse 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she had been freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can still ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. They went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Ka'um, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. 
Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Once Jesus landed in Capernaum, a large crowd gathered around him. This is not uncommon, for in Mark's gospel, large crowds always gather around Jesus. But on this particular day, a certain gentleman, who was a father, fought his way to the front of the line. He would not be denied. His name was Jairus. His occupation? He was a preacher, a synagogue ruler there in Capernaum. When he stood before Jesus, he immediately fell at the feet of the Savior. And he pleaded earnestly for Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. As a father, I can relate to the tenacious, adamant desperation of Jairus. This little girl was the apple of daddy's eye. He loved his daughter. He would do anything for her. She used to be a bundle of energy. She would giggle and laugh and play and run. But somewhere along the way, she got sick. Instead of getting better, she grew worse. Undoubtedly, Jairus had taken her to doctors, but they hadn't helped. Given her medicine, but that didn't work either. Instead of her fever breaking and coming down, the fever kept escalating. Her strength was diminishing. And in these days, she barely had any strength to lift her head off the pillow to get a sip of soup. Jairus hadn't slept in weeks. Every night, he paced the floor back and forth. He would go in and check on her just to make sure she was breathing. And throughout the day, he and his wife would routinely check on her, hoping that she would get some better. But she never did, never showed any signs of improvement. Of course, Jairus had prayed for his daughter. He was a synagogue ruler for crying out loud. He prayed. Other people prayed. Her name was on the synagogue prayer list for months. Because he was well respected in the city of Capernaum, there were a lot of visitors that would come and offer words of hope and help and offer words of prayer. But it seemed that none of it ever worked. The little girl didn't get better. She got worse. Jairus was at the end of his rope. He was at wit's end. He didn't know where else to go, where else to turn. He heard that Jesus had arrived back on the shores of Capernaum, so he thought to himself, I just have to go and see if Jesus can help. And so Jairus went with honest humility. Jairus went. You know, maybe some of you this morning can identify with Jairus. Maybe you know what it's like to watch a child struggle in sickness. Maybe some of you know what it is to watch a child wrestle with death. Maybe it's not a child, but it's another loved one. And you know what it's like to stand helpless at the bedside. There's just an uneasy feeling in the pit of your stomach. You want to do more. You want to do something. But it seems as if you can't do anything to fix the problem. 
And you're just there, just waiting for something good to happen. Maybe, maybe some of you can relate to Jairus this morning. Maybe it's not a physical ailment. Maybe it's an emotional ailment. Maybe it's a family feud. Maybe it's a struggle with a spouse. Maybe it's a monetary issue. But you know what it is to be at the end of your rope. You know what it is to be at wit's end. You have come today, and some of us are just hanging on to our faith by our fingernails. We don't know if we're going to make it another week. We're hoping that Jesus will show up, and Jesus just might help us today. Maybe some of you know what it is to be Jairus. One of the um, twists of irony in the story is that just two chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 3, we are told that one day Jesus was in the synagogue at Capernaum and He uh, healed a man who had a shriveled hand. He did this work on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we read that the Herodians and the Pharisees begin to plot on how they might kill Jesus. The noteworthy statement in there is for us to realize and remember that the Herodians and the Pharisees, they can't agree on anything. They, they don't get along at all. They can't agree on the right color of the carpet in the Capernaum synagogue. They can't agree on where to go for lunch after it's all over. They can't agree on anything. But on this day, they come together and they agree, we've got to get rid of the troublemaker named Jesus. As early as Mark chapter 3, there's a plot to get rid of Christ. There is something that is brewing. There's animosity that's growing even within the synagogue there at Capernaum. And these two groups that are always on the outs are in cahoots and they're working together trying to oust Christ. When I think of that, I wonder to myself, did Jairus know about that when he came to Jesus in Mark chapter 5? I mean, was he aware of the animosity that was brewing within the factions of his own congregation? I mean, I realize that sometimes the pastor's the last one to know anything that's going on around the church. I get that. But I wonder, I wonder if Jairus knew that there was a, a plot that was thickening to get rid of the rebel-rousing rabbi from Galilee. I wonder if it was occupational suicide for Jairus to seek out Jesus in Mark chapter 5. It wasn't private. It was very public. He, he went on the shores there at Capernaum. Anybody was there. Everybody was there. A large crowd was there. I wonder if it was hazardous for his own vocation. I wonder if he was putting his job on the line. I wonder if he was Willing to lose his credibility and his credence in the community. I wonder if he realized what he was doing when he went and fell at the feet of Jesus. I think he was ready to risk it all. I think he was ready to throw it all away. Why? Because his little girl was sick. She was dying. And he was willing to do anything so that she might live. And he thought maybe, just maybe, Jesus can help. Well, Jesus agreed to go. The crowd could begin to sense the buzz that was in the air. It was a, a growing mentality. As the, 
as the crowd made their way towards the home of the synagogue ruler, that crowd grew not only numerically, but also in intensity because everybody knew this had the makings of being a mighty, miraculous moment. Everybody was jockeying for position. They wanted to get closer to Jesus. They wanted to get an earshot to hear what he had to say. They wanted to see everything he was doing. So they were pushing each other out of the way, trying to get as close as they possibly could. And as they were making their way, more people were getting into the crowd. And the crowd was moving with a frenzied pace for as Jesus would speed up, the crowd would speed up. As Jesus went to the left, the crowd would go to the left. As Jesus went to the right, the crowd would go to the right. And everybody was pressing up against Christ. And all of a sudden, Mark says that Jesus stopped dead in his tracks. He began to look around and he asked the question, who touched me? Who touched me? The disciples are a bit caught off guard by this insignificant question. They're a little bit aggravated, frustrated. They're kind of perturbed at Jesus. After all, they think to themselves, Jesus, how can you ask such a silly question of who touched me? Everybody's trying to touch you, Jesus. We're in a crowd for crying out loud. Everybody's trying to press up against you. You are a celebrity. You're a crowd favorite. You're Jesus. People want your autograph. They want to get close to you. I mean, they want to be where you are. Jesus, everybody is touching you. So how can you ask the question, who is touching me? And furthermore, Jesus, don't get distracted. Don't get off course. I mean, remember, we've got to get to the home of the synagogue ruler, the little girl. She's on her deathbed. She's about to die. Jesus, don't go ADD on us. Don't get distracted. Don't you know, start going this way or that way. You've got to stay on task, on point. Stay focused, Jesus. And the more they tried to press Jesus, the deeper he dug his heels in the sand. They tried to push Jesus and he would not budge. You ever tried to tell Jesus what to do, where to go, and how fast to get there? You ever tried to press up and push up against Jesus only to discover that he's dug in his heels and the harder you press, the more he cannot be budged? This is exactly what's going on here. They're trying to tell him how to do ministry. They're trying to tell him where to go and how fast to get there. And he digs in his heels. And he begins to survey the crowd. And he looks at almost every person. And all of a sudden, he locks eyes with the woman in the back of the crowd. A smile comes across his face. He's not going to stop looking at her. It's kind of like his gaze cuts the crowd as if God cut the waters of the Red Sea. And he keeps staring at her. She has tears that are welling up on her eyelids, about to droop down onto her cheeks and roll down her face. She has a look of joyous anxiety. Filled with joy, but anxious in her disposition. She comes forward. She falls at the feet of Jesus. She tells him her story. This woman had been subject to bleeding for 12 long years. She had a physical infirmity that would have declared her unclean in her culture. 
Mark tells us that she had spent all of her life savings. She had gone to more than a few doctors. Nobody could help her. I find it interesting that Luke tells the very same story. You know, Luke was a doctor by trade. But Luke just seems to leave out that little detail that this woman went to all sorts of doctors and nobody was able to help her. I just wonder if she went to Dr. Luke (laughs) and not even Luke could help her. At any rate, Mark puts the detail in there. She went to a bunch of physicians. Nobody could help. She too was at the end of her rope. She was at wit's end. She didn't know where else to go and what to do, where to turn. She heard that Jesus was in town. She thought to herself, if I just get close enough to this powerful rabbi and just touch the hem of his garment, then maybe, just maybe, I will be healed. He is so powerful that I'm sure he has power pulsating throughout his robes. Sure enough, that's what she did. She made her way into the crowd. It's astounding that she's in public. It's amazing that she would be willing to risk it all and touch a religious teacher. After all, according to Leviticus 15, this woman was declared unclean. If if she touched anything, especially a rabbi, she could make that rabbi unclean and the end result could be her own death. But she thought to herself, I've got to try. I've been praying and I've been praying and I've been praying. She'd been praying for 12 years. Have you ever had anything that you've been praying for for years? And you pray for the same thing over and over and over again. And the days go into weeks and the weeks give way to months and the months give way to years and the years give way to a decade or more. Maybe you've been praying for physical health. Maybe you've been praying for the salvation of a spouse. Maybe you've been praying for the return of a prodigal. Maybe you've been praying for another job, a better job. Maybe you've been praying for something that's going on within your family. Maybe you've been praying for something for years. My friend, if if that's you, I want to tell you this morning, Some may just be one prayer away from a breakthrough, so don't give up on prayer. Somehow this woman understood, I think by the power of the Holy Spirit, she needed to get to Jesus. So she thought, if I could just touch the hem of His garment. And that's what she did. She got up and her fingertips just grazed the hem of His garment and instantaneously there was healing in her body. She was freed from her infirmity. What she wanted to do was to drift back incognito just to kind of get back in the crowd, not to be put on the spot by anyone. But wouldn't you know Jesus? He calls her out to give testimony. He calls her out. Now, she's joyous, but she's trembling. She realizes this may be the last story I ever tell, so I better make it good. This may be the last thing I ever say because he could order my own execution. And she's trembling even though she's joyful. And she's looking at Jesus and Jesus who could respond in anger is not irate. In fact, he's pretty compassionate. He calls her daughter, a term of endearment. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go now and be freed from this day forward of your suffering. There is a collective gasp that goes across the crowd. There's a a moment of awkward silence, and then that awkward silence gives way to thunderous applause because people understand that they've just witnessed a mighty miracle. That is awesome. And while Jesus was talking, a delegation of friends came from the home of Jairus, a synagogue ruler. 
Jairus was standing right beside Jesus. After all, that's where they were on their way to his house. The friends, the delegation, said, Jairus, um, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this. Your daughter, your daughter's dead. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Your, your daughter is dead. Let's not bother the teacher anymore. I mean, you've got decisions to make. You've got a funeral to plan. We've got to get back home. Don't bother the rabbi any longer. You know, buddy, um, we agreed with you. You know, while she was still alive, even we thought that, that Jesus may be able to help. But now she's dead. It's too far gone. You know the dead people don't come back to life. So don't bother the teacher. Come on. Let's go home. I love what Mark says next. Mark says that Jesus, ignoring what they said, turned to Jairus and said, don't be afraid, just believe. I love that. Jesus says, I don't even have to give an answer to what they're saying. I don't even have to give a rebuttal of what they're saying. You just talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. There ain't no way I'm going to speak to what you said. They don't even know what they're talking about. He says to Jairus, Jairus, you hang on to that faith. Don't doubt, just believe. You came to me in faith. You felt that I could fix it. I can fix it. Don't allow doubt to creep in and melt away your faith. You just believe. My friend this morning, I'm telling somebody today, don't doubt, just believe. Just believe that Jesus can fix it. Just believe that Jesus can handle it. If you ever want to tick off Jesus, all you have to do is tell him you've got a situation that he can't handle. You've got a crisis that's too big for his control. You've got a problem that's too overwhelming for his power. You've got a scenario that's beyond his sovereignty. All you have to do is tell Jesus there is a predicament, a problem, prognosis in your life that's too big for him. And Jesus says, whoa, who are you talking to? I can fix it. So he says to Jairus, don't you doubt. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Then Jesus somehow loosens himself from the crowd. He takes Jairus and Peter, James, and John. And they go to the home of the synagogue ruler. By the time they get there, there is a loud commotion. There is weeping. There is wailing. Undoubtedly, Jairus was an influential person in the community. So when they heard through the grapevine that his little girl had died, many of them came they were probably grieving, and it was probably authentic and real. But I also have a hunch that in the first century, many times when someone would die, someone of significance, a family member of, of a prominent individual, a friend of that family would get them to hire professional mourners. In the first century, if you could cry at the drop of a hat, you were never unemployed. You always had a job. 
if you could weep and wail with the best of them, if you could have crocodile tears rolling down the uh, your cheeks, you could always have a job. And I think that on this day, there were some of those hired hands, uh, mourners on the payroll that were there at the home of Jairus. And when Jesus sees this, he's had it up to here. He's fed up with that. And he says, why all this commotion? Why all this weeping and wailing? Furthermore, this girl is not dead. She's merely asleep. And they laughed at him. Their mourning was turned to laughter. Not because God had changed it, because they were making fun of God. They were laughing in the face of Christ. And once again, I love how Mark handles it. He just says that Jesus ousted them. <laughs> he just kicked them out. He evicted them out of the house. I don't know how he did it. I wish I would have been there. Ooh, I wish I could have seen it. Because I would have loved just to watch Jesus go in and say, you out, you out. The only ones in the house, Jairus, Mrs. Jairus, Jesus, and the three disciples, and the little dead girl. And Jesus goes into the room. He takes the dead corpse by the hand. He speaks in his own native tongue of Aramaic. Talitha Ka'um. Which means, little girl, get up. And Mark says that immediately she got up off of her deathbed. Mark loves to employ the term immediately. You read his gospel and it immediately says everything immediately. Everything is immediate, 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 all over the place. And so he loves to employ that term to show us that Jesus is on the move. He is, he is a moving Messiah. So immediately when he speaks, things happen. Immediately she got up. <laughs> and this one who was a bouncing bundle of joy, who was dead, is now alive again. This one who used to giggle and had been silenced, was now giggling again. This one who was always all over the place, all over the room, that was there still and silent on her deathbed, now got up again. And Jesus said, you give her something to eat. And also, you keep this quiet. Yeah, right. How in the world are they going to keep that quiet? That's amazing. That's a mighty miracle. How in the world do mom and dad keep that quiet? Now, why would he say that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is, especially in the Gospel of Mark, there is a messianic secret. It seems that nobody knows the identity of Jesus except for the demons. They always understand who Jesus is. But Jesus is revealing his identity. And so there are times that Jesus will say, especially in Mark's Gospel, don't say anything yet, don't do anything yet, I can't go there yet, until towards the end he fully reveals himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So there's a messianic secret going on. But I think also Jesus understands. Um, listen, I've got to get out of the house. I've got to get out of town because this, this, this mob will try to, and this crowd will try to mob me. So you be, you be quiet about this. Don't tell anybody about this. Let's keep this between us as a little secret. I think Jesus knows full well. There's no way you can be silent about that. I mean, has Jesus done something amazing in your life? You can't be silent about that, right? Has Jesus raised you from the dead? You can't be silent about that. Has Jesus given you a new lease on life? You can't be silent about that. Has Jesus wiped away all your sins, past, present, and future? You can't be quiet about that. There are some things we just can't pipe down on. There are some things we can't keep quiet and we can't keep to ourselves. Jesus knows this. Jesus understands. 
What an amazing story. Over the last four weeks, we have been talking about the meaning of membership. Today we come to this understanding that being part of this family of God here at First Baptist Pella means that we are committed to ministry. All throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as a Savior who serves. He serves the needy. He serves people around Him. And if that's what our Savior does, then that's what we ought to do, right? If we identify ourselves as Christians, if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see Jesus serving, so we also ought to follow His lead and serve in His name. After all, God has good things for you to do for His glory. Jesus is our model in every way, especially in ministry. And so this morning, I want to give you two points of application from this story as it pertains to our commitment to ministry. The first is this. Jesus teaches the value of the task within the task. Jesus teaches the value of the task within the task. This is a, this is a story of ministry. It's a ministry sandwich. You've got a story within a story. Mark does a beautiful job of writing it in this way. He writes it in this way intentionally. It is a beautiful picture of life and ministry. You've got the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. In the middle of that story, you've got another story, which is the healing of the woman who had the issue of blood for some 12 years. It is a story inside of story. It is ministry inside of ministry. It is ministry that is pressed together. It is a a ministry sandwich. And this is a picture of life. Have you ever, as you have followed Christ, felt pressed on every side? by legitimate needs. There are needs here and there, all around us, in front of us, behind us, above us, beneath, needs everywhere. And there are times that you may even feel suffocated because of the volume of needs. If I could just be transparent with you this morning on several occasions, there, there are times when, um, when I ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want me to start? There's so much that could be done, so many good things, so many good ministry that ought to be done on the journey of life. Where do you want me to start? What do you want me to do? How in the world can I make a dent in in the volume of, of, of legitimate ministry opportunities? And there are times that we look around and see all the needs that are around us in the church, outside the church, in our culture, uh, beneath our culture, all around us, that we ask ourselves I don't know where to start, and it leaves us paralyzed, ultimately doing nothing. So Jesus shows us the value of the task within the task. He was on his way to do a legitimate need in the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, and along the way, he did another opportunity of ministry. There was a task within the task. Once again, if I can be transparent, I don't know I don't know if I would have stopped for the anonymous woman of Mark chapter 5. I'm just being real with you this morning. There are far too many times I look more like the disciples than I look like Jesus. I get the angle of the disciples. Jesus, 
Don't get off track. Jesus, let's stay focused. Jesus, don't get distracted. We've got to, we're on the mission to do something good. We can't allow this interruption to uh, be a bump in our road. We've got to keep going. And I don't know about you, but there are times when you say, Jesus, don't go ADD on me. I've got to keep doing this and this and this in order for me to get to that, that, and that. I don't know about you, but there are times I'm just overwhelmed and I don't know if I would have stopped for the anonymous woman. And I would have justified it. And I would have said, listen, I, I've got to go over here to the home of, of, of the synagogue ruler and I've got to do something here and it's legitimate and it's good for the glory of God. And there are times that along the journey, I see opportunities as interruptions. If this story teaches me anything, it tells me get out of the fast lane Slow down. Not slow down for laziness. Slow down for ministry. So you'll see people the way God sees people. Because if you're not careful, you can bypass an opportunity and you can call it an interruption. You can say, you know what? I've, it's, it, it's an addition to my overstuffed agenda. I don't have time for that. I can't do that. I can't stop for that. I can't invest myself there. I've only had so many uh, hours of the day and so many things I can do. And I've got to go here, there, and yonder. And I've got to do all sorts of things. So I can't add one more thing to an already overstuffed schedule. I don't know about you, but oftentimes that's my life. I run in the fast lane. And if this story tells me anything, it says, you know what? There are times... When you've got to get out of the fast lane and you see what you call an interruption, God calls an opportunity. It's a task within a task. It's that phone call that you get saying that uh, you're needed to teach a Bible study. Well, a Bible study is a great thing to teach, but how are you going to get that into your schedule? It may be that you don't have time not to get it into your schedule. It's that request for you to volunteer or to work in the nursery. It's that stranded motorist on the side of the road. I can't stop and help them. I've got to get here and there. It's the phone call from the superintendent who's asking you to help tutor some at-risk children. It's the request for you to give up a Saturday in the fall in the state of Alabama, in order for you to go share the gospel at a food distribution center. If we're not careful, we'll see an opportunity as an interruption. Jesus teaches us the value of a task within a task. I'm not saying you throw away your calendar. I'm not saying you throw away your schedule. I'm not saying you just be willy-nilly on everything that comes along your way. No, you got to pick and choose. But what I am saying is that if you're anything like me, there are times when you probably bypass a lot of great opportunities that God has in store for you because God has some good that He wants you to do for His glory. First, Jesus teaches us the value of the task within the task. Secondly, Jesus teaches us the value that the ultimate goal of serving is saving. The ultimate goal of serving is saving. Jesus says to the woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. That word healed can also be translated as saved. It's the very same word. 
So what Jesus is saying is that I have the power to not only physically heal you, but spiritually heal you. And by faith, you've been healed. By faith, you have been saved. Do you realize that the church is the only organization, it's the only agency in the world that ministers in the name of Christ? No one else does that but the church. Only the church ministers in the name of Christ. We are so much more than another social service of our society. If all we do is just give somebody a loaf of bread without introducing them to the bread of life, then we failed in our mission. Because as a mission of the church of Jesus Christ, we realize that all of our serving, all of our ministry, the ultimate goal is to get them into the place where they can be saved by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve in order for people to be introduced to Christ. One of the great pictures of ministry is also found in Mark's gospel. I believe it's Mark chapter 2. Those four friends that get the paralytic at the feet of Jesus. They can't get through conventional ways, so they cut a hole in the roof and they plop their friend in front of Jesus. I'm sure that everybody thought that was awesome except for the homeowner. I mean, he looked up and saw the debris of his ceiling falling to the floor. But ministry, at best, is plopping people at the feet of Jesus. We do what we can. We work in cooperation because we know that the ultimate goal of serving is saving. I've been asked before, what is the greatest ministry of the church? I don't know how to answer that. What is the greatest calling of the congregation? What is the greatest uh, ministry? What is the greatest area of service that people can be involved in? I have no clue how to answer that. I mean, how do you, how do you differentiate the the power and the effectiveness between somebody who volunteers in the nursery versus somebody who stands up and proclaims the message. Which one's more important? It could be answered this way. Um, which wing is more important on an airplane, the right or the left? They're both pretty vital, right? I mean, if you don't believe me, just lop off one of the wings and see what happens to the airplane. It's needed, right? We work together. Why are we working together in various areas of ministry? We do this so that we can plop people at the feet of Jesus. So we can bring them to the point of developing a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because the ultimate goal of serving is saving. You and I can't save anybody. The best thing we can do is introduce them to the author of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I say all this because I believe this story teaches us a couple of valuable lessons. Number one, Jesus teaches us the value of the task within the task. And number two, He teaches us the value that the ultimate goal of serving is saving. So then let me tell you that inside your bulletin there's an interest card. It just simply itemizes some areas of ministry in the church. And I'm asking you today, what is the good that God has crafted you to do for His glory? It could be on this very page. This is an interest card. It no, no way obligates you to anything. It just declares your interest in certain areas. Maybe it's preschool or children's ministry, student ministry, small groups, senior adult ministry, um, worship ministry, or on the backside, college ministry, singles ministry, outreach ministry, upward ministry. We have a special needs ministry, jobs ministry, or maybe there's something else that's not even listed here. That's okay. Maybe you want to start it and put it right there on the piece of paper. I ask you to prayerfully consider this. How has God shaped you? How has He passioned you? How has He gifted you? What are you interested in doing? And then let us know as a church staff because our task is to equip the saints to do the work of God. Because God has made you to do good things for His glory. What is it? 
This is one way you can do it. You can fill this out and put it in an offering uh, box as you leave. You can place it here at the altar if you want to. You can give it to me or one of the staff members. Let me close with this. In his book entitled, The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren asked the question, if you're not involved in ministry, what excuse have you been giving to God? Is it one that you find in the Bible? Abraham was too old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses was a stuttering murderer. Gideon was too poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab, she was a prostitute. David had an affair. Elijah, he was suicidal. Jeremiah, he was depressed. Jonah, he was just reluctant. John the Baptist, he was just weird. Martha, she worried too much. Thomas, he doubted a lot. Peter, he was a hothead temper. Paul, he was blind as a bat. Timothy, he had a weak stomach. If God can use a bunch of misfits like that for his glory, I've got a sneaking suspicion he just might be able to use a bunch of misfits like you and like me for his glory as well. So we come to this story and Jesus reminds us the value of the task within the task. He reminds us the ultimate goal of our serving is saving because we serve a risen Savior. And He's in the world today. And I know that He is living whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy and I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks to me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. The reason I serve is because I've been served. The reason I minister is because I've been ministered to. The reason I try to help somebody is because I've been helped. Because all of this is couched on the understanding that we are serving Christ. So as Christ has ministered to us, so we minister to others. Oh, my friend, if you're part of this faith family, I want you to know that God has good that He wants you to do for His glory. So now, let's follow in obedience and do whatever He's telling us we ought to do. Heavenly Father, we bow before You. We give You this invitation. Lord, Your Holy Spirit is working in a mighty way. You are creating lightning bolts in the minds of people. And You are illuminating the good that You want us to be a part of. Oh, Father, I know a piece of paper can't capture all that. But Lord, help us to be a life, to be a believer who loves You wholeheartedly, serves You unashamedly. Father, help us as we go about our journey to minister in the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.